From LibertyCast Studios and the Defenders of Capitalism Project, here's another capital idea from your host, Mike Williams. Mike Williams here, defender and champion of laissez-faire capitalism. Hi, this is Michael Williams, again with another episode of A Capital Idea, and brought to you from the Defenders of Capitalism Project. We hear are advocates for laissez-faire capitalism, the only moral socioeconomic system. Today, we have a new topic. We want to kind of tackle the idea of housing and housing prices, why why uh, we're seeing such incredible inflation in the area of housing prices. And I'm joined by my co-host and collaborator, Mitch Whitus. Say hello, Mitch. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me again, Mike. You betcha. Mitch is fresh off the plane from a nice vacation in Hawaii. That's and, right. Uh, so you had a good time? Well, I had a great time. Yeah. I got to see dolphins, swim a little bit, relax. But I'll tell you what wasn't a great time was how expensive <laughs> Hawaii is. Yeah. Hawaii's uh, always been expensive. Well, it has been expensive since I've been going there. And it's it's definitely... Uh, you know, the, the prices on everything there from getting there to the hotels, to the food, to the excursions that you sign up for. Um, but it's worth it. I mean, um, that place is paradise as far as I'm concerned. It's, it's definitely a good vacation and I'm glad to hear that you had a good one, but it it is amazing how the prices are, uh, so high there. And that's kind of related to some of what we're going to talk about today. Um, now, why, why are, what do you think housing prices, not just in Hawaii, obviously, but uh, across the U.S., and, and actually this is a worldwide phenomenon in lots of, certainly lots of the developed uh, world, uh, you know, Canada is having incredible uh, price inflation in their real estate markets. What do you think that's uh, going on, Mitch? Well, as somebody who's looking to be a first-time home buyer myself, I have paid attention particularly to the local Denver housing market. And, you know, I just look at today, the median home price in Denver, it's about $575,000, which is $100,000 more than even just a year ago. And there's a lot of reasons to that, right? I think often on this podcast, I might try to make everything about government's fault. But of course, there are other things going on, right? A lot of people want to live in Denver. We're having a, a large influx of population. So I think that's part of it. Um, interest rates have been kept artificially low for a very long time. And now, particularly as interest rates start rising, I think we've seen a lot of people try to lock in a low interest rate mortgage, which hasn't helped in terms of being able to find an affordable house because now there's a lot of competition for a small number of houses. I think that there's also, and we've seen this you know, for the past, what, over the past decade, there's just, there's a lower housing supply, you know, after the great recession, 2008, 2009, a lot of builders got really hurt by the situation. And so we haven't had a, a big housing boom, understandably, um, because they don't want to have a big oversupply. You know, that's, that's, uh, obviously anyone who's interested in economics and the dynamics of supply and demand understands that, that, that kind of. That's what happens in a marketplace. But to me, it's amazing how many people who will conveniently use the supply and demand dynamic to explain things only look at one side of it. And 
And, and we have that certainly in Denver here right now. People will say, well, the reason why housing prices are going up is because everyone wants to live in Denver and the cat's out of the bag, you know, the, our secret's out and people want to move from California or Texas to, to Denver or Colorado. We've got it great here, great lifestyle, great weather. Um, and so it's all those people moving in that are causing you know, that increased demand and therefore bidding up the prices, but they're not actually saying that, that they conveniently leave out all the restrictions on supply. Stupid government laws. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's that's only part of the story, the supply and demand, the demand side of it, and and we we want to look at the the supply side. Why is it that government uh, governments everywhere, um, certainly here in Colorado, and and it's usually the case in larger, more popular uh, cities that they have the most restrictions on building and construction and trying to actually create more supply for people and. Yeah, you know, that that's that kind of regulation strangles the housing supply, especially in in the most desirable locations. And it's one of those things where the people who live there maybe are supportive of that, and they want to see their housing prices go up. But you know, you alluded to the whole point about um, someone who's a first time home buyer or someone who's younger really has a tough time because they they continue to get outbidded, even if their incomes are going up. They continue to get outbid, and and we're seeing that kind of insanity in Denver, and and certainly around the country right now. Um, is that all there is to it, though? That you know, we we just see restrictions on supply, and what what does that look like in your opinion? You know, why why would there be such restrictions on supply? Why would uh, governments and many of their constituents support that kind of policy? Yeah, I think they're. There are a lot of restrictions and many of them, like many government policies, I think they probably start out well-meaning, right? So we hear lots of euphemisms for this, uh, smart growth strategies. Um, well, we, we don't want to grow our city too much bigger. Um, so we're going to put in some laws to make sure that we don't have overcrowding. And you hear these certain keywords and you know that maybe there's some BS that's about to, to happen in your community. <laughs> and I, I think part of it is, and maybe it's just a human nature thing, you know, you move somewhere and of course you probably don't want to have a lot more neighbors, right? And, and so I think city councils get together, local governments get together. They say, well, we're going to have one, we're going to have zoning laws. So we're going to tell you exactly what can actually become a house versus what can become a business. So that's restrictive. They might tell you, this is exactly how tall you can build this building here. They might tell you, mm, no more building at all here, actually. Our community's big enough. Thank you very much. And these all cause artificial limits. And like I said, I think part of it is well-meaning. A lot of these city council members or whoever is making these laws, they feel like, well, I want to protect my community. My community's always had a small town feel. We're losing that. Um, let's make sure that we, we enshrine our community through law, making sure nobody else can live here. And it's a nice gesture, maybe in theory, but really what ends up happening in practice is that it becomes somebody we know, somebody calls it the banana effect, uh, build absolutely nothing 
anywhere near anyone. Yeah, Greg Walter says that uh, he's he's a uh, uh, um, he's an author and a and a consultant, but he he's uh, he's written a lot about uh, supply and demand, how it affects uh, uh, environmental policy and housing. Um, and it's it's funny how you use that term, and I agree with him. Um, and you know, you're you're giving some sort of well-meaning, well-intentioned uh, motivation on the part of policymakers, but there's also some, you know, maybe not so well-meaning. They're just wanting to uh, enhance their power. Um, you have examples like uh, you, you mentioned trying to preserve a small town feel, but you have all over the country large metropolitan areas who whose uh, city officials and councils um, are not necessarily trying to preserve a small town feel because that, that hasn't been there. You know, take San Francisco or someplace like that for a long time. And they're not doing, they're not trying to preserve that kind of field. They're trying to preserve uh, their voting base or property values. And, and that's one of the key things is people don't realize that you don't have a right to a, a certain property value. You know, you have a, you, what you want to have and what, what is uh, just and what happens in a, uh, a market system is where the, the law of supply and demand is allowed to work. And you have willing buyers and willing sellers. It's amazing how actually sellers oftentimes get locked into certain properties because they, if they're going to sell, they might end up paying capital gain taxes, and and they they get priced out of other properties that they might buy elsewhere anyway. So you have that happen. You have less transactions than you might otherwise because of all these regulations and laws. But let's get dive down to into some more specifics. Um, what do we mean by restricting supply? What is what exactly does that mean? Why do why did builders after the financial crisis in two thousand eight two thousand nine that time period when you had you know a collapse of the housing and this is what's interesting is people forget about the cycles the way they go and how they're created you know we had a government induced bubble at that time and then it was popped by government uh, policies and now we have it inflating again by having as you mentioned or artificial artificially low interest rates. And an inflationary environment and, and supply restrictions. Uh, obviously, COVID and the whole pandemic had some some effect on the demand. But let's talk about some of the policies that actually create these things in terms of uh, builders not being able to or being very much disincentivized to to make uh, new new projects and new supply. Well, I want to bring up one thing in particular. So Henry Hazlitt. In Economics in One Lesson, which if you haven't read it, you should read that. <laughs> Absolutely. People talks about there's often the seen and the unseen consequences of certain laws. And one law I want to talk about, I think, has a lot of unseen influence on increased pricing for new houses, increased raw materials, increased cost of living overall. And that's something that you have spoken about a little bit before, Mike. It's called the Jones Act. Sure. And the Jones Act is basically saying that if you're shipping cargo domestically from a U.S. port to a U.S. port, that ship needs to be U.S. owned, U.S. crewed, U.S. registered, U.S. built. And... Here's one of those great examples of something that may have been well-meaning at the time that's about 
100 years old now, this law. And the idea is it's supposed to reinvigorate the United States maritime industry after World War I. It's the patriotic thing to do. Yeah, it's one of those America first things, right? Exactly. Protect our, protect our maritime industry and our shipping. Um, and, and therefore, let's, let's use protectionist measures, you know, use the law to interfere and say that we want to protect certain uh, segments of the economy. Go ahead, though. So what this has ended up becoming is extremely, <laughs> it's a very bad thing for just general cost of living and raw material inputs around the country. You might ask, well, why is that? And the unfortunate byproduct here of this law, the unseen consequences of passing this patriotic feel-good America first law the problem is these domestic companies, they pay higher prices, which gets passed on to consumers. So the operating costs of U.S. vessels, which let's not even get into all the regulations around why it's so expensive to <laughs> run a U.S. vessel, right? But operating costs of U.S. vessels are over two and a half times that of foreign competitors. And that makes it more expensive to ship cargo, to ship raw materials around the country. And by extension, you have lumber, other materials that are going into building new houses, and that's all becoming more expensive too. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the primary driver behind more expensive housing, but I think we need to look out for these, these unseen effects of laws that a lot of us don't know a whole lot about and how they actually affect us over the long term. And I know you have a lot of thoughts about the Jones Act, Mike, so I want to leave it to you to talk more about your very strong opinions. Well, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The, the Jones Act is just uh, in a, you know, in a particularly egregious example of protectionist laws um, affecting so many parts of our economy. I mean, when you have, when you have that kind of – I mean, a big part of economics is, is dist distribution. Um, when we think about economics, we think about three parts, three overall general areas. And one is the production, you know, the actual manufacturing, the making of stuff, the making and production of goods and services. But the second one is, you know, how do people get them? How, do, how, does, how does it go from manufacturer to consumer? How do the things get distributed? How do they, what's the kind of transportation and distribution networks? Uh, and that involves shipping and trains and trucks and, and all a whole vast interconnected network that has to, that, you know, in, in, in a free market is, is coordinated by prices. Um, but that is delivering things on time when people want them. Uh, people think of it as sort of miraculous that they can get all the different goods and services they want in a free market economy, but it's, it's because of the coordination of, of prices. So that's the second area. And then the third area, which oftentimes is too to emphasize is consumption. So we have, you know, uh, the production, distribution, and consumption of goods is that's how we think about things as economists. And that that whole idea of the Jones Act is is a massive interference with the distribution of of so many important products and services. And and you know when you're talking about building, when you're talking about a house or or uh, a uh, a storage unit, or you're talking about a a commercial building, 
there's a lot of products that go into it. There's a lot of things that need to be produced. And not any one manufacturer necessarily produces all those things. So it, ha- so it has to be coordinated. And whenever you add layers of cost, uh, which certainly the Jones Act does, um, it's just going to make things that much more expensive. And if we pile that on top of zoning laws or building um, standards, and, and you know, this, is, this is another thing that uh, we should dive into because people hear that, well, we don't, want, we don't want unsafe buildings. We should have building standards and we should have zoning laws because you know, we don't want those builders out there building shoddy things. Um, not realizing that it's, it's in the interest of the builder to make something that is going to be saleable and is going to have, you know, he's going to stake his reputation. He, they're going to stake their reputation on long-term. You know, y- you want a situation where people have lots of choices and not everyone can have uh, the most expensive house. So what we're do- doing is actually discouraging building, especially at the lower end. And this is again, where you have uh, communities who will cause all these, you know, Boulder's a good example. Boulder will ca- cause all these restrictions on housing. And then lo and behold, they complain that they don't have any affordable housing. And so then they try to, they try to get into the housing business and make some deals with builders and try to create some uh, affordable housing and segments. And then they're just increasing the cost all the way around by interference in the market mechanism. You know, and, and the Jones Act is, is just one example of that. We, we, we've seen that not just in housing, but that's one of the, the examples of how, this, how we're kind of springing out of this COVID pandemic situation and blaming um, manufacturers and business people and and saying, well, they just can't manage their supply chains or foreigners. We always want to buy, you know, blame foreigners because, you know, God forbid we buy something from overseas at a cheaper, maybe a higher quality. Um, this is all about blaming anything but the actual restrictions and policies that have made it such. I mean, I've seen studies and estimates that show our housing prices could easily be 50% of what they are right now, maybe even much less because we've seen such a massive inflation over the last two years. Uh, but housing prices could, e- could easily be half of what they are in a free market. And you know, I, I think that especially younger people should, should take note of that and, and be advocating for uh, a much freer market, especially in housing, but in, across the board on a principled basis. And one thing that I think is important to mention, Mike, yeah, for people like me, first time house, housing buyers, hopefully, if I can ever afford it, this is a really big issue. But I know I talk with people who are more established, who've had their house for a long time. Maybe they own several properties. And what they've seen is their housing value go up and up and up. They think, actually, this is kind of great, you know? I could sell this for a lot of money if I ever wanted to. So why would somebody who is more established, already has a home, I mean, it seems like it'd be a great thing for them, right? Their property value is going way up. Yeah, and, and that, that is sometimes the position that maybe someone who's more uh, seasoned, shall we say, or someone who's already got equity in, in, in properties or at least one property but the, the, they feel they feel the restrictions as well. They can't make choices that they might otherwise make. They might say, "Okay, now it's time for me." You know, I've, I've raised my family, for example, and I don't need this much space, and now I want to go buy something else. But lo and behold, I'm being priced out of that market because 
the costs have gone up so much. So they, their own movements and own decision-making have been restricted by those, those houses, as well as the taxability of, of having, uh, having to pay capital gains, potential capital gains, despite uh, a little bit of an exclusion um, on the equity that they have right now. So they're, but the bigger issue is they might feel, okay, my wealth is, is, has grown because I've got more equity in my house. But does that really change their, is that changing their life in terms of w- what wealth should do? Could, does it make their life that much better? They're still in the same house and they are not really necessary. If they're going to sell it, then they have those things that we talked about already. If they're not going to sell it. That hasn't changed their, their life. But having a larger net worth and a larger wealth should actually improve your life, improve the quality of your life. They're actually, in one sense, restricted. But the bigger issue is those same forces that are causing prices to go up in housing are basically causing prices to go up in many other parts of our lives, other things that we would want to consume, food prices or fuel prices. You know, inflation is a, is a really insidious tax in a sense. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a stealth tax that most people don't really understand that well. They just know it when they start to feel it at the, at the pump or at the grocery store. But, you know, people who are real estate rich, so to speak, have those same, same massive issues to deal with when they're talking about their cost of living going up and the cost to maintain that house is going up as well. So it's not really, I mean, they may see it as in their favor to, to actually uh, see price appreciation on their house, but this is what, what people sometimes get confused about. Uh, the monetary veil is, is a, a term that Hazlitt used and that's, you know, money having money and inflated money having a sort of uh, a shroud over the way you understand what's important. And what's important is what you can do with money, you know, what you can buy and, and how you can live your life. If you're living a more uh, fruitful and bountiful and flourishing life and, and the people who are actually seeing appreciation on their house, but also their costs going up in all the other areas aren't necessarily any better off. One thing I want to point out as well and we've hit on this a little bit throughout the conversation, but a lot of these laws that make our cost of living go up, that make the price of housing go up, I mean, a lot of these things are passed by people wrapping themselves in the flag, right? Saying this is for the good of America. We're going to stay away from foreigners. We're going to do it all domestic. This is some really good stuff. And we see that with the Jones Act, right? So sure. uh, I know <laughs> even just looking on Google, uh, you'll see these organizations have popped up that support the Jones Act. And one of these is called the American Maritime Partnership. And they spin it as a national security issue, right? They say, well, of course you want a U.S.-owned, registered, built ship transporting goods and services and cargo between U.S. ports. I mean, it just makes sense. But you take a step back and realize, really, the only people that that law is benefiting, it's benefiting labor unions, it's benefiting some politicians because a small subset of their constituents benefit from the higher pricing created through that. But I just want to encourage people to be wary 
when people start saying, we're doing this for the good of our community. We're doing this to keep the small town feel or to keep, we want to keep Denver feeling like Denver. Or America first, that kind of, the yeah. whole, that whole thing. Um, yeah, that's just more of the trend. And we've talked about this on, on prior episodes. Uh, there's definitely a trend toward authoritarianism and nationalism and tribalism where people are looking inward instead of, you know, and trying to protect what they fear they're losing. And it's unfortunate because people do feel that way, but it's, it, they're looking at the wrong or not uh, actually making the sense of what the real cause of some of their fears are. Um, people uh, are, every time it's been tried in any, any case, uh, when you have more of a market-based situation, when you have more freedom, more uh, mutual voluntary trades between buyers and sellers, you end up having flourishing and, and uh, people being better off. And if they apply those lessons, they'll understand that's that's exactly what will happen in housing. We have examples of that. I mean, uh, people, uh, you know, the people in Houston, for example, don't have zoning laws and they don't have nearly the cost increases that we're having here in Denver. That's because there aren't restrictions on building the way they are here. Yeah. And there's, you know, their supply and demand are reaching equilibriums all the time versus having these artificial protection protections that are in place that don't really actually end up protecting anyone in the long run. No, and zoning laws hurt. They hurt the most vulnerable people. Zoning yeah. laws hurt poor people. Absolutely. They keep people from being able, being able to get affordable housing. And that is the tragedy of it all. Well, and that's, but that's the truth with inflation generally. Um, you know, when you, when you think about, uh, that dynamic that goes on with higher prices, someone's betting for benefiting from some higher prices. I mean, if we just, if we just inflated every single thing across the economy, including your wage and my wage and what I pay for cheese and what you pay for milk or what, what, uh, we pay for cars. If we just said, okay, we're going to do that all at once. We're going to inflate everything all at once. We're going to add a zero to everything, you know? So someone who's making $10,000 a year now makes a hundred thousand. Someone who makes a hundred thousand is making a million. And if you, you pay $5 for, for a cost of, uh, a gallon of gasoline, you're going to pay $50. We just did it all instantly at the same time. No one would be any better off. The, right. the challenge is that, you know, inflation does have different timing aspects and certainly has an impact on, on people who have less control over their asset base. Now that's, that's, a you know, maybe a little advertisement for making sure you're doing all you can to increase and control your asset base and your time, have more control over your life, meaning having more wealth, because people who are wealthier have choices. They can say, oh, okay, I'm going to shift my wealth over this way. That's going to inflect, that's going to reflect maybe some of that inflation that I'm seeing. And I'll be on the other side of it. I'll, I'll be the collector of the higher prices rather than the payer all the time of the higher prices. But someone who doesn't have uh, much control over their, over their wages or over their uh, spending, or, or if most of their spending has to go for some of the basics in life, food, transportation costs, gasoline, some of those very basic things, housing, um, and they're not in any control over it. They're the ones who, who suffer the most from, from inflation. And it's not just, just in housing. It's in, uh, because of higher prices like that hurt them the most. Um, and it's amazing how sometimes the politicians who are advocating for these uh, price controls or, you know, restrictions or regulations that are causing these higher prices, they're doing it in the name of trying to help the poor, right? Mm -hmm. To help the, the less advantaged, the lower income people. 
but they're the, they're the ones who get the hurt the most, and it's it's just demagoguery. Uh, um, now, part of it's because economics is a little more complex. You have to, as you as you alluded to earlier, when you mentioned Hazlitt and and trying to look at Henry Hazlitt being the the person who wrote economics in one lesson. I don't want to have our listeners uh, have us gloss over that. Uh, if you're if you're interested, you should be reading uh, uh, Henry Hazlitt. Uh, there's a a very fairly simple text that called Economics in One Lesson, and he's talking about the one lesson being. Well, are you looking at uh, policies' impact on just one group or across all groups? And are you looking at you know th- second and third order effects? Um, and that's that's one of the major lessons that uh, gets lost on people, and, and they don't realize you know these kind of policies that are put in place supposedly to either protect you know the maritime industry or to pr- protect you know this neighborhood by zoning laws. Or to protect, you know, supposedly to protect our safety in terms of the how high your stairs need to be, or how how what you know how you build what's the pitch on a roof, uh, with all the kind of building codes that go on, those are not really helping people. Those are actually really uh, costing people and costing people at the bottom the most. So, for someone like me, Mike, I get a little sad when I look at housing prices, thinking, how am I going to afford this? I agree with what we've spoken about, about horrible laws, regulations affecting housing prices, but what can we do about it right now? I know that I'm not going to be able to eliminate zoning laws tomorrow, so what are some steps we could take to maybe help fix some of this? Well, you definitely want to be advocating for the right kind of policies, and in general, um, you know, it's beating it's beating a drum that we uh, gloriously beat every episode. But people should be advocating for as much freedom in the marketplace as possible, as little intrusion, as little uh, as little distortion as possible between willing buyers and willing sellers. Now that's an abstract statement, but it means whenever you see a government uh, official talking about you know doing something uh, by putting a law or regulation into place, you should, you should be advocating typically against that and voting for the, those people who are, if you can find them, for, for people who understand and advocate for free markets. And we should say, Mike, that this is actually, housing is an issue that often takes place at the local level. Absolutely. I mean, this is something where you can actually show up to your local city council meeting yep. and advocate for this or meet your representative who wants to be your city council person and actually ask them about these issues. I mean, Absolutely. This is happening on the ground right next to you. And that's, that's the other part. It still is America, which means we still have freedom of movement, at least within, within our, uh, our country, we still have freedom of movement. And so people uh, can vote with their feet. Now that means, that means maybe making changes. That means in your lifestyle. I mean, I know people who are, uh, a good example is the, the, the inner city restrictions on housing prices and all kinds of other policies that have, have increased the homeless problem, the, the crime problem, all those are interconnected and they're, and they're, they're a result of policy. Um, and I know people who are moving out of the cities. I know people who are moving out of downtown Denver. I know people who are, who are moving out of uh, Manhattan. I know people who are moving out of San Francisco saying, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm going to take my supply and demand dynamic somewhere else. And if there are enough people who move and you have a drain on the city's uh, tax base, the productive people who are there, that will eventually probably change the policies. Now, it sometimes takes a while. 
And yeah. unfortunately, the people who, who again have the least mobility, who have the least ability to say, well, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm, I can't, I can't get up and move to to a whole nother state. Um, they're the ones who get punished the most. We we saw this in Detroit. I mean, Detroit was an absolute disaster basket case of the country for a long time. Inner city crime, uh, all, massive regulation that caused all this, and and really poor policies with regard to policing and property rights protection. Um, and, but but eventually it it did hit bottom, and you saw a change. And and uh, as I understand it, Detroit's actually making a, a reasonable comeback in many of their uh, most blighted neighborhoods. And that's where you do have ultimately supply and demand will have have that impact. You can't cheat reality forever. When you see people uh, suffering that much, and you realize it's needless, and that and and you know people are just uh, so fed up that they're leaving, that creates um, lower prices, lower prices, lower prices. Eventually, and then someone who will be an entrepreneurial will come in and say, you know, this isn't th- maybe this can be better. Maybe it is. Maybe it's hit rock bottom, and I'm gonna I'm gonna show that uh, by taking some risk that there's a, a decent investment here. So. I mean, the solution to high prices, this is something that uh, uh, I say all the time. The solution to high prices in any free market situation is those high prices themselves because high prices attract capital. If, if you have people who are uh, building homes and they can continue to command higher and higher prices for building those homes, then they're going to. They're going to move in and, and provide more supply. And that supply itself will actually reduce the costs and therefore bring prices back down. It's it's the idea of a equilibrium, and it, you know prices are so crucial. Um, people don't always understand all that goes into a price of anything, whether it's a house or you know, as I mentioned before, of uh, a gallon of milk or gasoline. It's reflecting values. How important is this thing in my life right now, and how important is this thing that I've built? If I'm a housing a home provider, a home builder, you know how. How much can I afford to let this go, or how much of a profit do I want to or need to make? So it's reflecting so many values into one single measurement: a price. Um, and when you ever have, whenever you have these interferences, artificial interferences of values, that's what basically you get when you get regulations. You get government distortion of individuals and businesses and communities' values. And, uh, and it's a tragic thing because you end up ultimately having wealth destruction across the board. So what I should do, Mike, maybe <laughs> I should pay attention to my city council, you should. see what kind of horrible laws they've been passing this week. If I can, maybe I can try to vote with my feet, go somewhere else to another community. But it sounds like maybe part of this is We've got to wait part of it out because eventually, as you said, you can only cheat reality so long. Yeah. yeah and, and if you, I mean, the other thing that's important for people to realize is how detrimental it is to try to impose your values on someone else. I mean, a lot of the, the, uh, the regulations that we see in, in, in large cities are about people saying, well, this is what I think is beautiful. This is the kind of architecture I think is beautiful. And so I don't want anything that's different than this architecture built, or I think this kind of environmentally uh, friendly thing. I mean, I don't know if it's really, I I should have looked that up before this episode because I I don't know if it really has gone down in Denver like it was originally, but there was, there was a restriction or a regulation for 
every new building, a certain amount of it had to have a, a rooftop garden, had to actually have a rooftop garden. And, and people don't realize how massively expensive that is for a builder to put on. It might be, you know, great to have gardening on top of your roof and it might be, uh, maybe that's environmentally friendly, maybe not, but it's a really expensive thing to say, okay, now we're going to have, you know, soil and, um, and irrigation and, uh, you know, a beautification of a rooftop for people who are just wanting to live in an apartment. Well, and not only was that a law, Mike, that was just passed a couple of years ago through the popular vote. Right. That went to voters, which we've discussed somewhat before. What's the difference between a democracy right, and a republic? Right. right. And, and if, and if people can say, you know, this is, we're going to count noses here. It's going to, there's a, as long as there's a majority that can gang up on a minority, the mi minority in this case is maybe people who don't have as much money to be able to afford that kind of apartment that has a rooftop garden or a builder, you know, who, who is trying to make, uh, make a profit at building reasonable housing. If a majority can say, well, we don't really care about your values. Uh, and we don't care about the trade that you might make or the voluntary exchange that you might make together. We're going to impose our values on you because we think this is the way to go. Um, then you have a culture that's, uh, that's in bad shape. You have a culture that's willing to, to be swayed by the gang or the mob, so to speak. And I, I use that term to, to refer to such a uh, direct democracy, but it's, it's, it's really a bad sign when you have um, the willingness to just say, well, that individual's rights or property don't matter anymore. And, we, and we've seen this, uh, you know, the most egregious examples are where we see just eminent domain cases where government just comes in and takes people's property. And, and um, you know, there's a lot of examples we could share on that, although people probably are familiar with those. Well, I'm leaving a little more depressed today, Mike, <laughs> but I think we've talked about some really important issues, maybe some factors that go into cost of living, housing, that a lot of people don't really think about. And this is not just a generic supply and demand problem. Government has gotten into the middle of this supply-demand problem of housing. And consequently, things are more expensive and things are worse. Yeah, things are worse and they're probably going to get worse, not only in housing, but in many areas of our life uh, where you have that kind of restrictions. Um, again, it, it's interfering with people's values. And here on the Defenders of Capitalism Project, we are unapologetic champions and defenders of people's choice, their ability to make trades with whoever they want and at whatever price they feel comfortable making that trade at, reflecting their own values. And that's, that's the biggest thing we want to advocate for. Uh, Mitch, I really appreciate you uh, bringing this topic to my attention. I think it doesn't get enough um, airtime, especially um, right now, because like you said, there, there are lots of people who are, who are wanting to buy their first home and they are not able to. And we do have the solution. The solution is to advocate for a freer, more civil relationship and markets. Well, this has uh, been an interesting topic, an interesting conversation, and I want to thank everyone for listening, and hopefully you'll tune in to another Capital Idea with Michael Williams and Mitch Whitus, or one of our esteemed guests, and uh, thanks for being here, Mitch. We appreciate it. You guys uh, hang in there, and we'll uh, talk to you soon.